You are listening to Changing Hearts, Changing Lives, a seminar given by Changing Lives Ministries. David Pallison is a counselor and faculty member with a Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, as well as the editor of the Journal of Biblical Counseling, a publication of CCEF. Session 7. Some of you probably noticed in this particular uh, pictorial that our, our map has been changed by the addition of two arrows. Now, it's still flat, it's still a piece of paper, it's still black and white, you know, that sort of thing. But my attempt in putting the arrows there is to make a very important statement. Change doesn't happen just because you're able to analyze well. It is possible to get a biblical worldview and be able to make sense of yourself and other people. And you can figure out, okay, in that situation when Johnny does so-and-so and I get ticked off, it comes because I'm trying to blah, 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 and here's what, who God is and here's what I should do. And you never change that way. Analysis doesn't change us. Insight alone doesn't change us. Insight is very helpful because it lets you, like being oriented to a city or in a map, you know where you, you have the lay of the land. But in order to change, you actually have to do something to be different, don't you? And what those two arrows are seeking to capture, I, I like to summarize in two, two words. I used them the other day. Transact, act. There is some sort of transaction with the God you need that is the foundation of change. It is so, perhaps some of you caught that as we were reading that James 4 passage. You've had this, this analysis of the dynamics of anger and fighting and conflict and why do we get all bent out of shape and James did not do what every self-help book in Barnes and Noble or Borders does. He didn't just give you a bunch of tips. Now when you read those self-help books, they're often, the tips are often pretty good. You know, like count to 10 and, you know, take ownership for your own responses and try to listen to the other person and don't make snap judgments and obviously don't hit people and yell at them and call them names. And those tips are not bad, but those tips are so powerless compared to what James does. Because what's, and it all grows out of James' worldview. James is, because he's an apostle, he's thinking the way that the Lord who sent him thinks. Since the problem of anger and conflict is a heart problem, that is to say, it is a problem ultimately not just between you and the person you're fighting with, but it's a problem between you and God. It's a problem of pride, of bad zeal, of, of living for my pleasures, of lust. Because the core of the problem is between you and God, the solution is between you and God. And so when James gets around to going for what really changes you, that verses 6 through 10 of chapter 4, draw near to God, humble yourself before the face of God. Humble yourself, he'll exalt you. He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Draw near to him. He, you know, bewail your sins. Come to God. That living transaction. And now, I've been involved in, in personal ministry for 25 years and uh, teaching and counseling and ministering and being an elder and leading small groups. And I have become more and more and more convinced of how absolutely essential this is. The people who change, 
transact. They do something with God. They, go, they don't just talk about it. They don't just say, sort of, well, I should do this, or I would do this, or I need to do this, or next time I'll try to do that, or I hope God gives me grace to be able to do that, that sort of woulda, coulda, shoulda, next time, ought to, need to. They go to God in their need, the real God of grace. They, they act like Christians, in other words. People saved by a Messiah. People in need of the Holy Spirit. People in need of a Father to help them. And out of that transaction, then, they act. Think, about, think with me just for a minute again about the nature of the heart, right? Where does the heart go astray? Well, it goes astray in the ways that absolutely at every point mirror where the heart gets reconnected to God. So, for example, we are, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of losing money or the fear of death or the fear of what people think of you is to be hijacked. The fear of the Lord makes you sane. We are called, you are called to love God with everything you are. Where do you get hijacked? Well, if I love my way when I got my appointment schedule, if I love the good feelings I get when people like me, if I love the, the, uh, the, the uh, pleasure of being, you know, watching nine hours of football games, I've been hijacked. Haven't I? We are called, I'll give one more example that, that, that is, just blows the doors open on the issue of, of the addictions, right? Which are very big in our, in our culture. Where does the Bible talk about the addictions? Well, there's the obvious places of the passages on drunkenness, aren't there? And perhaps some on sloth or sexual immorality. Uh, but you know what? There's a lot more passages on addictions. I, the way I like to put it, there are a hundred psalms on the addictions. A hundred of them. Every psalm about where you take refuge in the midst of the troubles of life, by implication, turn it on its head. You know, you're called to love God, what do you love? You're called to fear God, what do you fear? You're called to take refuge in the Lord in the midst of the heat. Where do you take refuge in the midst of the heat? And the issue of drunkenness and drug addiction and pornography and obsession with jogging and TV watching. and the, You will see it. The structure of people's addictions maps on perfectly to where they look for their little goodies, their little feel-goods, their little you-deserve-a-break today, their little comfort zones in the midst of the troubles of life. But, uh, those issues, crucial. So it makes all the sense in the world then that there is something that happens between you and God that underlies then the action that is the actual bearing of fruit out into the world in which you live. Um, I want us to then talk about these two big arrows, as we call them. Transaction, the vertical dimension, and action, the horizontal dimension. The root and the fruit of this wise life that is worth living. I want us to get into it just a, a quick moment by introduction uh, on a particular question. What changes you? Uh, because it's a very perplexing question. I'm not going to do full justice to it, but I want to briefly just give you at least something to chew on on this. What changes you? And we want to put at the bottom, uh, and I think of this as, as the house of change. You know the only thing that changes you is God. It is God who wakes the dead. 
It's God who gives eyes to the blind. It is God who converts us. It is God who must uh, take deaf people and make them hear, and blind people and make them see, and dead people and make them... It, it is the, the fruit is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is God alone who changes us. Without, you know, my father's the vine dresser. He, prune, he prunes those he loves to make them fruitful. You're the, you're the branches, I'm the vine. Without me, you can do nothing. It is God alone who changes you. That's the foundation. But if we just left it there, you could get away with being a mystic and you'd have an excuse, and, and people do this, right? Well, the lightning hasn't struck me, so... Mm. Shrug, I guess I'll keep sinning. And the, and the Bible never lets you off the hook that way. It tells you that, that God alone can change you to turn up the burners, you might say, to say, so that you will know your need and will say, help, help. You must help me, right? He changes you. And the Bible goes on. And, 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 or as one hand, I'll say, it's God who converts you, turns you back to himself. And then go, you turn around a page later, it is the word of truth that changes people. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It is your word alone that changes people, right? The word of God is given to make us alive. James 1 talks about that. 2 Timothy 3. Uh, the, uh, how do you keep yourself from sin? By storing up your word, his word in your heart, right? And it's not just because it's, it's, it's not magic, right? It's not as though it's, you know, Take a verse. Uh, sometimes I think we, we, we bumble in ministry to each other when we, in a sense, depersonalize the word and so, by sort of just pointing simply to the, the bookish reference. You know, when someone says something like this, it says in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, that God will never leave or forsake you. Therefore, you know, you can say with confidence, you know, the Lord's my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Nobody gets very excited when you say it that way. It says in this verse somewhere in a book, right? Yeah, it's all true, but it's not a very exciting way to say it. You contrast it with God says to you, he will I will never leave you or forsake you. Therefore, I say with confidence, right? There's a, he said that to me, and he means it, and I say back to him, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And I have a, I have a very close friend who is a timid sort of person, you know, someone who could get walked on in her workplace. She had some very aggressive coworkers. They would manipulate her. They'd domineer her. They'd put her down. She had a hard time saying no to them. They'd take advantage of her. They'd get her to do their work while they gabbed with friends on the phone. And she was intimidated, and she didn't know what to do. And she realized, you know, I have this choice. There's a choice in my life. If I am ruled by that coworker, if, if she thinks ill of me, my life is ruined, then I will be a doormat and a pushover. But if I am ruled by, the Lord will never leave me. He will not forsake me. Gulp, deep breath, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And it was the most wonderful thing to watch over a period of weeks and months in this woman's life as that, see, I don't want to say that verse, that God who said those things that praise him are written down so we can get at them, that God met her. 
And she started to be able to do these wonderful things, like confront her coworker, and be able to just say simple things like, you know, no, I need to go home now. And I can't help you with your work, I've done mine. And raise the fact of, of uh, getting intimidated and realizing she needed to just stand up more. And she did some very courageous things given who she was and God's working in her. It's the Word of God that changes us. And then you can equally say people change you. It's, uh, it's so interesting. At the end of James, the very last uh, line of James, talks about those who turn others from sin. It's, it's, part, of, it's part of why we're here. It's a, it's a key reason why all of us are here, isn't it? We believe there's something about the relationships we can, we can have with people that will make a difference, right? It's not as though the difference you make or the difference I make is disconnected from the fact that it is God who changes people. It is the word of truth that changes people. But it's also people who change people, isn't it? He who walks with the wise becomes wise. And the downside, you, companion of fools, suffers harm. But people have an effect on others, don't they? Or the way Paul puts it to his, his friend Timothy, watch your life and your teaching. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, it doesn't mean that Timothy is the Savior, but there's something about the way that we affect each other. Wise friends change you, don't they? And then we can say at the exact same time, and this isn't like 20%, 20%. It's all 100%. The situation changes you. In fact, typically, it is suffering that changes us. If you have no traffic jams in life, you enjoy radiant good health, everybody loves you, you're the best athlete in the, in the, in the team, you you're, you're have sparkling intelligence, you're tremendously successful, you have money just an honor flowing on you, you don't really find out, well, sometimes you do find out what an arrogant so-and-so that person is. That reveals the heart. But a lot of times, the person themselves doesn't ever find out what they're made of stick you in a traffic jam. Have it be the athlete and he breaks his leg and can't play. Have a lot of money and lose it. Have a good friend and they turn against you. There's where you find out what you're made of because it is the heat that the refiner's fire, you might say, boils to the surface what's really there. And typically you find dross. And if the Holy Spirit's at work and the dross comes up, but there's a God of grace. And so you start to learn to need the gospel and to need a savior and to need help. The situation changes you in the hands of the Lord as interpreted by people who love us, as explicated and addressed by the word, as it is God who just threads through all of that. And then in the final analysis, you change, right? Nobody changes for you. It's you who repent. You're the one that believes. Nobody opens your mouth and makes you say words. You aren't a puppet. You're an image bearer of God, right? You are in the image of the king of kings. You are a king, queen. You're a person of power, influence, significance. You, we aren't puppets. We aren't robots. We are people. And God's growing up adults. He doesn't want us to stay children. He wants us to be adults. And it is we who change. Now, I can't tell you how could it be possibly so that all five of these things are so at the same time? They're all 100% so. Although it's fair to say one is more foundational, and you know, I think there's a sort of a logic there, but, but they are so. And 
Every person who has done any changing knows all five of these things, things, these things are true. They are all true, right? I mean, I, I, I knew it from the very first place of change in my life as a, as a non-Christian. I was a hearty pagan, hippie, 60s. Uh, you saw, you probably won't believe it, but I was a bartender and a bouncer at one point <laughs> in, my, in my, I know, you know, small burrows rolled, I know. That, uh, I was actually, you know, I was a lowlife, and... Um, <laughs> I was, I did not want God. I was running from God absolutely as fast. I wanted anything but, I wanted to be God, right? And God arrested me. I mean, it was Damascus Road, you know? I mean, he just, he let the fish run, and then he's like, yank, and you're coming in the boat, bub. It was, it was one of those complete uh, interventive salvations. It, uh, it was the word of God. There was a verse, I will take out of you the heart of stone, and I will put in you a heart of flesh that is soft and alive and pliable and knows me. And I can remember, you know, 25, almost 26 years old, having 25 and a half years of life experience shouting in my ear on one side, and this promise that God would be merciful and change me, talking on the other side, and this weighed more and won my heart. Right? It was also my friend, Bob Kramer, who changed me. He loved me, but he was the vehicle God used. And I will never forget the moment. It was a moment of loving truth and it, where he said, David, you know, Diane and I, his wife, we love you, we respect you, but what you, how you are living and what you believe, you are destroying yourself. It was a very candid word. It was a true word, and it was a true word spoken in love. And God used that like armor-piercing Shell, just cut through all the defenses, all the rationalizations, all the excuses, all the pride, all the self-righteousness. He used a person as the agent of change. And it was the situation that changed me because, you know, relationships don't work and, you know, where are you going in your life and what's the point of it all and we all just die anyway and we're just atoms and molecules. And he used suffering to change me, right? But it was me who changed. I cried out to the Lord. I begged for mercy. I confessed my sins. You know, I was the, not the Pharisee, but the publican. God be merciful to me, the sinner. I changed, right? Yeah. Five sides of change, and it's worth our while to keep all of them on the table. Now, what is this key transaction? Change begins when your heart turns to Christ's grace. That Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy, is the essential dynamic of the, of, of the new life. And in that, there's a number of things about this turning. And I've, I've sliced the pie into three major sections. Wake up, own up, shift your weight. Okay? The wake up call. This is the sovereign work of God. Blind eyes see and deaf ears hear and dead bones re-knit back together. It is something that God alone does to awaken us to himself. We are given life. We are awakened from our sleep. One of the ways I think about it is that here you have, is that people live in a world, it's like omniverse theater, you know, 60-foot screen, technicolor, experience, throbbing, you know, Dolby sound thundering at a gazillion watts in both ears, and... These words are really boring, and there's no pictures. 
And it's about a lot of things that don't make any sense, like parasites and Jebusites and Girgashites and who cares, you know? And if you're reading the, right ver the wrong version, it's these and thous and nobody can figure out the language. And what happens when you are awakened and given ears, this goes technicolor and Dolby. You realize, it's about me. This is about life. This really happened. Jesus, the Son of God, the Word made flesh, died for sinners of whom I am one. This goes radioactive, goes electric in it. Awake from the dead, right? Blind eyes see. And then with that wake-up call is a growing persuasion that life is a moral drama. In other words, it's not about getting everybody to like you, being successful, being good-looking, having excellent health, making a lot of money, having a retirement plan. What it's about, it being life, is which will you be? Will you be a cactus or will you be a fruit tree? Will you be a fool or will you be wise? Will you be a sinner or will you be a lover? That's what it's about. That's what's playing in the drama of human life. And that persuasion that a moral drama is playing out is utterly crucial part of the process. Either thorn bush or fruit tree from to. That dynamic, that from to change dynamic we've been talking about, that starts sooner or later, slower or faster, to reconfigure the whole way you live. And the third part of the wake-up call is a growing persuasion that God is gracious. It's, he's got to be, because we've got a big thorn bush problem, right? He's got to be gracious. And he's gracious in exactly where we need it, past grace. He died for you. He chose you. Jesus came. He adopted you. He, and we could go on and on. He, he, you were born again from the dead. There is a part of grace that is history that builds your life on that foundation. And what the past grace says is God is for you. He is for you. He looks at you not as an enemy, but a friend. And then there's present grace. And what present grace says is God is in you, and God is with you. He's for you, past grace. He's in you. He's at work in you. The Holy Spirit indwells you. He's with you. He walks beside you through whatever you go through. That's present grace, the gift of the Spirit, the persuasion that there is present time help for whatever your need is. And then there's future grace, which is really the persuasion that you do have a future. You might say, you know, He's, with, he's for you, he's with and in you, he is before you, that you're going somewhere. That's what Paul had in 2 Corinthians 1 that we were looking at in a previous session. It is that certain hope that utterly changes all the rules in how you process the sufferings and difficulties of life. That wake-up call then leads to owning up. You own up. You start to see, think, feel accurately. And there's, again, a lot of ways we could talk about this, and I've broken out a couple of them. Uh, I'll, I'll nail three here. It's to identify what's wrong specifically and accurately. Now, here's where your analysis helps. To be able to come to God with what exactly is the thorn bush, both root and fruit. What did you say? What was the attitude and where did it come from? And to be able to identify that in a specific way, rather than being euphemistic, blind, confused, you know something's wrong, but you don't know quite what it is. Making repentance intelligent is one of the ways I like to think about it. 
where you're actually, you know what's wrong and where you need help versus the spiritual blindness that Paul was talking about. Second part of the owning up is recognizing I do what I do. Nobody makes me do it. My genetics, my hormones, how much sleep I had last night, whether my wife was nice or crabby, how much money I had. It doesn't make me sin. There may be temptation to sin, even running into my blood vein, you know, my blood vessels, you might say. You know? I mean, when I get allergies in the end of August, I can tend to be more crabby. But if I am crabby at someone, at my, my kids or my wife, the, the allergies didn't make me sin. I need to ask their forgiveness. I've done wrong, right? It creates a situation of temptation. You know? PMS, dying of cancer. You know, I mean, it, the big, the little, it, uh, it's recognizing that what I do, I do. And that cuts through all the buts and becauses and excuses that we tend to make. Yeah. And then finally, seeing that the thorns, the thorn bush is serious before God. This, is a, this is, a, is a crucial one. And you see the way I've unpacked it there. Cutting through my tendencies to see problems as, in my eyes, how I think about myself, my self-esteem, if you will, and how other people might see me. My problem is what my reputation would be, what you would think of me. And there's a crucial dimension in real repentance that you see yourself as before God's eyes. So let's say you, you, know, you lose your temper. It's not just, oh, how could I do that? I'm such a horrible person. That's not repentance. I just feel bad because I think of myself as a good person, so how could I have been such a jerk? Or, you know, oh, I shoplifted. What would people think if I got caught? That's not repentance, is it? Because that's just worried about my image in the eyes of other people. But if I see that theft, anger, lust, pride, grumbling, those are between me and God, then you're starting to get a God-centered view of the owning up. And then finally, actually shifting weight. That here's where you might say the arrow really works, the transacting. This isn't just analysis. It's saying and doing what needs to be said and done to the one who matters, to the one whose mercy I need. And so it involves very simple things like that we often forget, like confess it, which just means name it. Be able to say to God, Lord, I was wrong to have that attitude towards my wife, and I was wrong to be such a proud, self-centered, lazy so-and-so that, that drove that. Name it. Name it out loud. Say it for what it is. There's something in the way God runs the universe, that to actually say what's wrong, come public with it, is hugely beneficial. One thing it does is it, it, it forever cuts out your ability to make persuasive excuses to yourself in the future, you know, as though that behavior is not wrong. But confess it. Second, seek tangible mercies. God has promised mercy to our need. So seek that mercy. Don't just beat yourself. It's not wear, repentance is not wear a hair shirt and flog yourself and feel lousy for days and weeks. Seek the mercy that is outside of yourself that your Father has promised and ask Him for that. And thirdly, rely upon it as a refugee. You know, I like that, you know, if the Psalms tell us to take refuge in God's steadfast love, let me be a refugee. Let me trust that if God says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So believe it and quit living for reputation or beating yourself up or, you know, your self-esteem or your social reputation. 
Let me live before the eyes of God, who has said he's merciful, and to rely upon that. And then finally, and this is often a, a funny one, the realization that the end of the repentance and change process, that from to, is joy and gratitude. That's the real tip-off, you might say, that you've actually transacted. You have found God. And in finding God, you have found one who is merciful and powerful and tender, and he erases sins, and he empowers you to change that joy and gratitude for good reasons, you might say, is the full fruition of a living, transacted relationship with our God. For information about this resource and others like it, call Resources for Changing Lives at 1-800-318-2186 or visit us on the web at www.ccef.org. A CDR Communications Production.